Good morning, ladies. I don't know where everybody is. I'm going to teach to three empty tables. Uh, uh, do you have any questions today? Although I will say that based on the number of children that were coughing in PE yesterday, uh, we probably have some, some moms home with sick kids because was, I was trying to talk to them and all I heard was <laughs> So, okay, don't cough on each other, please. Uh, any questions from this week? I've heard it was hard. I've heard, I'm going to ask you this privately because I don't want to look like a fool. I've heard, I've heard all kinds of things. So uh, I think you probably have questions if you're willing to ask them. Are you going to talk about the heavenly realms? I am going to talk about the heavenly realms. Um, so yeah, I will do that. I've been asked about that as well. So I will talk about it. It'll be real brief. So if, if I, 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 this doesn't happen very often. And I am absolutely 100% fully aware that I'm a freight train teacher. And if anybody even wanted to ask a question in the middle of my teaching, they'd be like, no. <laughs> so I, I totally get that. The whole, you know, give and take thing doesn't work well with my style. But if, I, I mean, I'm only touching on it briefly because I've talked about it before. But if it's not to your satisfaction, then let me know. Any other questions? I'm also going to talk about grace was given to Paul for three reasons, and what are they? <laughs> I've been asked that more than once, because there's only two there. No, there are three, but when I did my study, I had no idea <laughs> what the answer was. So you're, you are not alone. Uh, it's only by the grace of God and commentaries that I know the answer to that. Uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today, uh, for the, the crisp fall weather, the wind not so much, but the crisp fall weather and, uh, and just the goodness that we see in your, um, in your changes of seasons and in the rhythms uh, that we see in, your, in our world because of who you are, uh, because you are a God of grace, a God of order, uh, and, and the rhythms of your grace just astound me, Father. Uh, I pray that would be evident to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, so we're, gonna, we're just going to jump right in. We're going to start with, not this, but that's a good verse too, and as is that one. We'll read this one next semester. Oh, no, I went too far. Uh, we're going to talk with Paul talking about being a manager of grace, essentially, which is kind of a weird thought, but an administrator of grace in the first six verses. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. And now he gets sidetracked. I love that, by the way, because this happens to me all the time. Uh, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins this introduction, and he says, for this reason, and his intention is to tell them, I'm praying for you, and here's what I'm praying for you. But he gets sidetracked. By the way, Paul does that a lot, and it's one of the things I love most about Paul, also his passion. Uh, probably the thing I am told most about my teaching is, you're just so passionate, and I'm not 
I think it's a compliment. I hope it's a compliment. But, uh, but I love Paul's passion uh, in his writing. So he's going, to, he's going to tell them he's praying for them, and he'll get to it. But he gets sidetracked when he writes, for you Gentiles. It's like he goes, for you Gentiles. Speaking of you Gentiles, let me tell you a little bit about my ministry to you. And so that's how that gets started. And he begins, though, in this first verse by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. When Paul wrote this, he was in prison. He was most likely in prison in Rome. We don't know that for sure, but that is the most likely place. Uh, And he could have very, I mean, I'm telling you right now, if I were in prison, I would not be happy about it. Uh, And he could have blamed the Romans for that. He could have said, these stupid Romans put me in chains for no reasons. He could have even blamed the Jews, because in fact, probably what got him there was an uprising in the temple in Jerusalem by the Jews who claimed, who, who trumped up charges against Paul that he had brought Gentiles into the court, past the court of the Gentiles into where only Jews were allowed to go. And so they trumped up these charges and the Romans arrested him. And it's a, for, like from Romans 21 on, Romans 20, or not Romans 21, Acts 21 on, which is where that story is told, uh, is kind of the playing out of what happened to Paul from there. Probably during that time, Paul wrote Ephesians. And so he could have blamed the Jews and their trumped up charges, but Paul's attitude is completely different. Paul doesn't say, I'm in prison because of the Romans. He doesn't say, I'm in prison because of the Jews. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he's not blaming Jesus for that. He's saying, my imprisonment is part of my service to Jesus. In fact, by being in prison, I am sharing in Christ's sufferings. He saw it in a very positive light. And Paul essentially is saying, and you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it because it's for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul was in prison specifically because he taught that Gentiles have equal access to God with Jews. Gentiles are now, can be now, part of God's people, be members of God's family. Had Paul been content with just preaching Christ to the Jews, or at least been content with saying, yeah, we'll preach to the Gentiles, but y'all got to be circumcised and keep the law in order to become Christians. In, In other words, you need to become Jews to become Christians. Had he been content with that, I don't think he would have been arrested. Because specifically, everywhere he went, he got in trouble because he was preaching to the Gentiles. He is in prison because of that, for their sake. And he's saying it's worth it. He's saying, you're worth it to me to be put into this Roman prison. Um, God had a, a different ministry in mind for Paul. He had a ministry in mind. Paul's calling was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So he talks about that calling. He talks about that ministry in these verses. And Paul sees his ministry, he says here, his service to God as grace, as God's gift to him. God has called him to preach to the Gentiles. It has landed him in prison. And yet, he sees all that as God's gift to him. Wow. 
And then he says, because of the mystery. Again, he talked about the mystery earlier as well, and he says that, as I've written to you briefly already. And so he brings up this idea of a mystery again. A mystery in scripture is something that can only be known by the revelation of God. It is something that is revealed by God that was previously unknown and can only be known by the revelation of God. So, what is the mystery? Well, it has, always has to do with the gospel. As, as he says here in, six, uh, in verse 6, he says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together. And so it always has to do with the gospel. Earlier when he talked about the mystery, um, it, I can't even, actually, I can't even remember what chapter that was in, but earlier when he, when he brought up the mystery, I think it was uh, chapter 1, it was about how God was bringing everything, God's intention was to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under Christ, under the headship of Christ, that Christ would rule everything. That was the mystery. Related to that here, part of what uh, he's bringing together is Jews and Gentiles. And so the mystery here, he tells us plainly, is that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. If, if you read the Old Testament I mean, it may be implicit in there, but it's not explicit anywhere. It's not anywhere that, that someone in the Old Testament would come out and go, hey, yeah, Gentiles are also part of our... No, that's not there. That's something that God revealed, that Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Uh, and so now, uh, because Christ has destroyed the barrier, the enmity that existed between Jews and Gentiles, and he has made the two one in himself, they now both have access to God as one new people, as the people of God, as the children of God together. So to sum this up, what Paul is talking about here with the mystery, uh, the mystery is the revelation that all things will be brought together in Christ, and specifically that Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in him. So the mystery is that all things will be, in heaven and on earth, will be brought together in Christ and under Christ, and specifically that Jews and Gentiles are part of that. They have been brought together in Christ. And then he says it's been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets, and we saw that when he was talking about the foundation being um, made up of God's holy apostles and prophets. Same thing as he meant there. Holy just means set apart. They've been set apart by and for God, and they're a specific group of people in the early church. The apostles were those who had been commissioned by Jesus himself. So Peter and, and John and, uh, and James, although he didn't, that James didn't live very long, and, and the disciples who were commissioned by God uh, to spread the gospel were the apostles. Paul considered himself, and I think rightly so, an apostle because on a Damascus road, he was commissioned by the risen Christ to spread the gospel specifically to the Gentiles. So that group of people, and then prophets would have been teachers and leaders in the early church to whom God had given this revelation, this revelation of the gospel, this thing that had been previously unknown. Well, who would that have been? Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, probably Apollos would have been considered one of these uh, people, you can read about Apollos and Acts, and you can, Paul talks about Apollos as well. A brilliant, brilliant theologian uh, and early church teacher, 
uh, who may have written Hebrews, but that's a story for last semester. Um, so now in verses 7 through 13, Paul's going to talk about the significance of the gospel. And he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless, boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God and who created, in God who created all things. Oops, I didn't want to do that. That's not what I wanted to do. Wrong button. Oh, no, 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 now go forward, please. <laughs> uh, I'm going backwards. I'm sorry, I was hitting the wrong button. Thank you. Uh, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because my sufferings are for you. Okay. Um, so... Paul says, again, that his, his ministry is a gift of grace. God has given him this grace, that he views his ministry as a gift of God to him. I'm not going to go into this now because you're actually going to spend some time thinking about that thought uh, in a couple weeks when we get to the reflection week, the community day. But what a, what a powerful thought that the ministry that God, God has given me to do is actually his gift to me to do. I don't think we always view it that way. So what Paul is saying is that through grace, he became a servant of the gospel. So now we've seen through Ephesians that grace not only connects us to God, grace connects us to Christ, Christ grace connects us to one another. Now we see that grace also calls and empowers us for service. It is by grace that we serve. It is not only by grace that we're saved, but it is by grace that we serve. So this grace was given to Paul for three reasons. God gave Paul grace to preach the riches of Christ to the Gentiles. We see that in verse 8. He gave him that grace of ministry to preach the riches of Christ, the unsearchable riches are here. It calls it the boundless riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Secondly, God gave him grace to make plain the administration of the ministry. We find that in verse 9. To make of the mystery. Of the mystery. I'm sorry, did I say ministry? I didn't mean to say that. Thank you. To make plain the administration of the mystery. And then thirdly, God gave grace to make the wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, in verse 11. And, and we'll find out that that's actually the role of the church, to do that. Uh, so those are the three reasons that God gave that grace. And they're very interrelated purposes. In fact, the first two uh, are, are almost the same thing, that God gave him this ministry to preach Christ to the Gentiles and to make plain the mystery, which is 
part in part that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together. So those are two really very similar things. And the third one is the result of that. So because God has brought the Gentiles in, because God has saved us by his grace, then that, has, that is something that is made known, and, and God's wisdom in doing that is made known, not only to people on earth, but also in the heavenly realms, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, but, but Paul here in Ephesians it talks a lot about the role of the church. In fact, Ephesians talks more about the role of the church than any other New Testament letter. Uh, and so that's a lot of what happens here. And, and he's talking about the church's role as making known to the heavenly realms this, uh, this wonderful wisdom of God and bringing together Jews and Gentiles. So what's he mean then when he says to the rulers and authorities? Well, absolutely that means spiritual beings, but does it mean good spiritual beings, angels? Does it mean bad spiritual uh, beings, demons and, and Satan? Or does it mean both? It, it, could, it, it could mean both, but Paul's focus in a lot of ways has, when he talks about in the heavenly realms, has been on, uh, on demons. And so I think it means, uh, probably means that more likely. So then he says, um, in the heavenly realms, to these spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. That's not a place. That's not like heaven. And I'm going to give you an example from the Old Testament, uh, hopefully to help you understand this. But in the heavenly realms means the spiritual, um, the spiritual realm that exists, even though we can't see it. It's a spiritual reality, that an unseen spiritual reality that exists. If you remember the story um, in the Old Testament of Elisha and his servant... And, and his servant goes out one morning, and they're surrounded by people that are going to attack him. And he runs in, and he's freaked out, and he's like, Elisha, we're all going to die. And, and Elisha goes out, and he's totally calm. And the servant's like, why are you so calm? And, and all Elisha says is, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And God opens his servant's eyes, and he sees surrounding them chariots of fire with angels that exist. But why well, just got chills? That exist but are unseen. Okay, and so then the servant's like, oh, dude, those guys are in trouble. Okay, that's in the heavenly realms. We don't see it, usually, but it's there. It's there right now. I think I have time for one of my favorite camp stories. Um, we had a tornado one year at camp, and when you have a tornado at camp, it's interesting. And the place where you used to go, anyway, was in the basement of the chapel because it was the only basement on the campgrounds. And so I had, we're down there, and I'm storyteller Amy at camp, so I tell the Bible stories. So this counselor brings up this kid. Now I realize that the counselor was bringing the kid because he did not know how to answer the question. So the counselor brings up this kid and says, hey, uh, Eric here has a question for you. And so Eric looks up and goes, so like, storyteller Amy, I know that like when it's raining and it's thundering and lightning, like the angels are bowling in heaven. But like, what are they doing now to make the tornado? And so I gave him, I told him the story of Elisha. I gave him the best answer ever. And I said, you know what? I don't know what they're, but let me tell you what I do know they're doing. I know that they're surrounding this chapel right now. I know that we're in the palm of God's hand. I know that God is protecting us. You know, I, it was beautiful. I just got to tell you, it was a fabulous answer. <laughs> and this is what he said to me. Yeah, okay, yeah. So what are they doing? So are they like, I'm like, I don't know, dude, they're spinning around. I have no idea. Maybe they're having a dance party, and that's what's causing this. 
but there is a, there is a greater spiritual reality that exists. Uh, and, and that is what he means, that, that, that the church is making known to this spiritual reality that exists. The manifold, the many-sided, the amazing wisdom of God. That is a high calling for the church. And I'm not sure we always do it very well. Sometimes I think people see, and therefore the spiritual realms, realms see more what we fight about than the manifold wisdom of God. But when the church is the church, living in unity with one another and in fellowship with, with one another, even those spiritual beings that are in opposition to God marvel at what God has done in and through his people. This is what um, Dr. Klein Snodgrass has to say about this. Yeah. The church's very existence and conduct are making known how great God's plan of salvation is, both to people and to the powers. This gives unparalleled importance to the church. We need to be the church. We need to be the church that God has called us to be. But he talks about here the unsearchable riches of Christ or um, the boundless riches of Christ in this new NIV uh, version. What is that? What are they? Well, they're everything that Paul has told us, that we've been called, we've been chosen, we've been saved, we've been redeemed, uh, that, that, we've, that God has, has broken down in Christ the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And on and on and on. And it's also what he tells us here in verses 12 and 13. My clicker does not like me today. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. We have freedom to approach God because of what Christ has done. Now it says here that in him, in Christ, and through faith in him, that word pistis, that word faith is pistis in the Greek. And it can mean faith, or it can mean faithfulness, depending on the context. But what it sounds like here, where it says in him and through faith in him, is that our faith somehow wins us access to God. That doesn't make much sense, does it? I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think Paul actually here, this should be translated faithfulness, as in the faithfulness in Christ. In Christ, and through the faithfulness of him, or in him, his faithfulness, we have access. A more literal translation would be, in, who, in whom we have boldness and access in confidence through his faithfulness. The focus here is not on human faith at all. It's on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was faithful in going to the cross, we have access to the Father. The confidence we have, the access we have, the boldness we have has nothing to do with our faith and everything to do with the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And then he tells them, don't be discouraged. I know I'm in prison. I know you don't like that, but don't be discouraged because I'm imprisoned for you. And that could have made them feel bad. It's like, he's in prison for our sake. Wow, I got him there. 
And, and that could make them feel bad. But, but Paul is saying, look, this imprisonment is part of my service to Christ. And it's worth it. You're worth it for me to be here that you would come to know Christ. In fact, the truly discouraging thing would be if there had been no one willing to do that for the sake of us Gentiles, wouldn't it? Um, those of you that know me pretty well know that uh, I have this, I have a lot of idiosyncrasies, but one of my idiosyncrasies is that I and my family are the only people on the planet that like the movie Ishtar. And, um, and we love the movie Ishtar, especially the first half. And the movie Ishtar is about these two songwriters who are horrifically bad songwriters and they want to make it big. And just the lyrics alone are absent. So we, we roll on the floor laughing. Well, there's one point where the Dustin Hoffman character is distraught and, and ready to, to commit suicide. And so he crawls out on the ledge of his apartment building and he's threatening to jump. He's not going to jump. His best friend and songwriting partner, uh, Warren Beatty, crawls out on the ledge with him to convince him not to jump. And, and one of the things Warren Beatty says to him is, there are a lot of people who are worse off than you. Poor people, sick people, poor people, people who don't have someone to go out on a ledge for them. Yeah, yeah. And Paul, Paul the, truly, the truly discouraging thing would be had there been no one willing to go out on that ledge for the sake of the Gentiles. Paul was called to do it, and he did it. Praise God that he did. And so now he's going to get back to his prayer. Now he's ready for this reason. <laughs> Again, for this reason, I kneel before the Father for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Isn't that beautiful? Even if you didn't understand what it was saying, it would be beautiful. What a beautiful prayer that he prays. So again, he says, for this reason. Well, what's the reason? He's pointing back to chapter 2, but also what he's just been talking about. And he's saying, because you have been saved by grace, because Christ has destroyed the, the barrier between Jew and Gentile, because God's plan from before the beginning of time was to bring Gentiles into his family, and because both Jew and Gentile now have access to God, he kneels before the Father to pray for them. And he says that he kneels before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. You know, a name in ancient times meant a lot more than a name means now. Now mostly, unless you're me and you drive your husband nuts with all the things, all the requirements for a name for your child, um, it, it, we just, you know, I like this name. Let's name him this. I like, I like this name. A name then had meaning. In fact, a name was so much more than a label or a way to identify a person. A name revealed the person's nature and character. In fact, you remember when Moses was before the burning bush and he says he's trying to get out of doing what God's called him to do. And he says, who should I say sent me? What's your name? 
And, and God says, tell them, I am sent me. Or Jesus, who's the English version, that's the Greek version of, of Yeshua. The American version would be Joshua. means God is salvation. You will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God is salvation. So a name had meaning. And if you look back in the Old Testament, it happens all the time. These women will give birth. Really bad time to decide what to name your child. And so they decide, because this happened to me, I'm going to name this child this. In fact, Moses said when Gershom was born, because I am an alien in a strange land, I'm going to name him Gershom. Okay, so it's like you give birth and it's like, because I bore him in such pain, I'm going to name, name him, I should have had an epidural. You know, that's kind of the way it works in the Old Testament. Um, and so when he says that we derive our name from God, what Paul is telling us is that we belong to God, that we are his, that our identity, who we are, is from him. He has given us our name. One of my very favorite camp songs is, I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, or ashamed. I will change your name. Your new name shall be child of God, holy one, overcoming one. He's given us a name. Our name is derived from him. What a glorious thing that is. And so then Paul prays this prayer, which is essentially a prayer that they would have power, that they would be strengthened. Paul prays that they would be empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that they might know Christ's presence and his love in an intimate way. In other words, Paul prays that the Spirit will be so strong in them and will so control their lives that people will notice. When I was a, a young believer, so still in high school, I, was, I had the great privilege and honor um, to be mentored and to be discipled by the leader of the youth group that I attended. Uh, her name's Jeannie Mayo. She's a wonderful woman of God. And, uh, and I, I spent a lot of time with, with her, and people would, she'd just be somewhere, and people would spontaneously, complete strangers, walk up to her and go, what is it about you? I feel so drawn to you. What is it? It's Jesus. It's not me. It's Jesus. That's what Paul wants for them, to so know the strength and power of the Spirit that they will be changed, they will be transformed. In verse 17, though, it says, so that, so, so I pray that you will be, uh, that, that you, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It sounds like that the indwelling of Christ comes from the indwelling of the Spirit. That is not what it's saying. It's, verse 17 gives the cause for verse 16. The indwelling of the Spirit and the indwelling of Christ are not two separate things. They're the same thing. When we come to know Christ, we are indwelled by his Spirit. They are the same thing. But because we have been indwelled with Christ, we can know the power of the Spirit. And so then he says that Christ will dwell in your hearts. Um, and this is one of the very few places where Paul talks about Christ being in our hearts rather than us being in Christ, which is really interesting. Uh, but in, in uh, early times, in uh, biblical times, the heart was considered the center of one's personality and thoughts and emotions and will. 
In other words, it was, he, he's talking about the center of our being, the center of our lives, so that Christ exercises rule over all that we are and all that we do. Uh, and, and one theologian says this indwelling is through faith. That is, as they trust him, he makes their hearts his home. I told you last week, just as an aside, that one of the things I do on my way to church on a Tuesday morning is I listen to music that, that centers me, and I tend to listen to the same songs over and over. And one of those songs is a song called um, Come and Make My Heart Your Home. And, and the chorus says, Come and make my heart your home. Come and be everything I am and all I know. Search me through and through till my heart becomes a home for you. Uh, and, and today, the words that just really spoke to me said, let everything I do open up a door for you to come through so that my heart will be a place where you want to be. That's what Paul's praying for them, that our hearts will be a home for Christ. And then he says, I pray that you being rooted and founded in love. Because we are in Christ, because he is in us, we are rooted and established, a better word for that would be founded, in his love. And it is by being rooted and founded in his love that we can understand, that we come to understand the greatness of his love, at least in part. The thing this made me, me think of, going back to my family, was the relationship that my parents had with one another, and it was truly this great love story. And because I was rooted and founded in their home, and because that was the picture of a marriage that I had, I knew how I was supposed to be treated by a man. And if he wasn't gonna treat me that way, he wasn't going to have me. And because I was rooted and founded, and that's essentially what Paul is saying, that you, because you are rooted and founded in Christ, you understand the love, the greatness of his love for you because of that. God's love is what nourishes us, like, like roots nourish a tree. God's love is what, what it nourishes us. God's love is our foundation, like a building. It is what uh, holds us up. We are upheld by God's love for us. It is what sustains us. John Stott, a fabulous theologian, theologian of the last century, said, love is the soil in which believers are rooted and will grow, the foundation upon which they are built. And it is in experiencing this love um, that we know it. It's as we experience it that we come to know it. And we are transformed. Paul calls this uh, love a love beyond knowing. God's love is so great. It is so high and wide and long and deep that it is, in fact, unfathomable. I love the paradoxes of scripture, and this is one of them. Paul says, I pray that you would know a love that is unknowable. It is so great. We can never know that love completely. We can only know it in part because it is so immense. It is literally unfathomable.
unfathomable. It cannot be plumbed. It is so deep. It is so high and wide and long and deep. Paul here, there's, there's always more to know of it. Paul here is overwhelmed by the love of Christ. Uh, and he wants us to be so overwhelmed by it as well. And he says, I want you to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. When we know God's power and we know God's love, we are transformed by that love. And we experience the presence of Christ in a powerful way. Because Christ is the fullness of God, and because we are in him and he is in us, we are able to experience the fullness of God, his presence and his power. And consequently, we become more and more like Jesus. That's what Paul is praying for his readers here, that they will come to the spiritual maturity in Christ that he's about to map out for them in chapters 4 through 6. And then finally, I, 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 believe, I believe this was completely spontaneous. I believe that Paul was so overcome by the, the depth, the height, the length, the breadth of God's love for him that he just overflowed with praise. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He says that, that, that God's power is beyond our imaginations. He says, now to the one, actually the one who is able more literally, is now to the all-powerful one whose power is beyond all we can ask and imagine. Uh, now to him be glory. And, and what I think Paul is inviting us to do is to consider everything that God has done. Everything that Paul has laid out for us, which is only part of what God has done. Consider all that I've told you. He is able. God is able more than able to do even more than we can ask or imagine. I think of Han Solo in Star Wars, where she's trying to get him to help Luke out, the, first, the real first one, the good one. And, uh, and he doesn't want to. And Prince Leia is like, look, if you do this and you win, the, the reward will be a lot. And he's like, how much? And he's like, she's, she says, well, more than you can imagine. He says, I don't know, I can imagine a lot. I can imagine a lot. God is able to do more than we can even imagine. That is how powerful he is. And here's the deal. That power is already ours in Christ. We already have that power. God is at work and he is eager to work in us to achieve his purposes. That should excite us. And so Paul, it excited Paul, so he says, to God be glory. Giving God glory isn't giving him something he doesn't already have. It's, it's acknowledging something. It's, it's an active acknowledgement of who he is. 
Giving God glory is to extol him for who he is and what he has done. In short, it is to worship him. All of this that Paul has just taught us in these first three chapters is the foundation for the morality he's about to teach us in chapters four through six. So looking forward, Paul's teaching in the latter half of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is rooted in this, is rooted in this teaching. Paul prays that we would experience God's power. Then he tells us that that power is beyond even our imagination and that that power is available to us and it will transform us. Therefore, and his next words will be, therefore, live a life worthy of your calling. We're able to do that because of all this that Paul has just told us. Uh, Dr. P.T. O'Brien says, the doxology at the end of Paul's prayer concludes the first half of the letter on the same note with which it began, namely, in praise to God for his mighty salvation initiated in eternity, carried into effect in Christ, and intended to redound to the praise of God's glorious grace for all eternity. Paul wants his readers to have a theological perspective on God's mighty saving purposes. He prays that they might be empowered by Christ through his spirit so that they might walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The prayer and doxology of chapter 3 function in an important preparatory way for the subsequent admonitions to love in the second half of the letter. If I could say it in a theological way, orthopraxy, which means the right, right acting, what the right way to act is rooted in orthodoxy. It's rooted in right thinking about God. Paul has spent three chapters giving us right thinking about who God is and what he has done. And now he's going to say, now, live according to that. Your behavior needs to be rooted in that. Well, in conclusion, I love Paul's passion through these first three chapters. Paul has been overcome with emotion as he has laid out for us his theology, his orthodoxy of all that God is and all that he has done for us in Christ. And that causes him to just burst forth in spontaneous praise to God. May our lives be so passionate for God. And Paul's purpose in explaining all this and in doing this in the first three chapters is to give us a foundation for our lives a reason for living our lives out loud for Jesus Christ and for his glory. But even more importantly than that, his purpose is to let us know that this power to live that way, the incomparably great power that God has for us, that is beyond our imagination, is already ours in Christ. Once again, Paul is telling us, become who you already are. May we so realize this power that we are transformed to the very core of our being. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the truths we have found in these first three chapters of what you have done, of who you are, of how much you love us, of the power you have available to us. Father, it overwhelms me. May all of that not only redound in glory to you, but may it also be lived out in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies. See you next week.